0: John Copenhagen
1: and Al Warren. 106.5 FM, Los Angeles. One hundred and two point three FM, Riverside.
0: And one hundred and five oh AM,
1: Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, and Mr. David Martino is here. He's in between his karate belts. Yes. In between them? In between them. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you got another video out there. What's going on with you with all that stuff? Like, uh, you're doing all these kicking videos. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what it's meant to do, Al. Oh, okay. I'm putting them on there just for you. Yeah. Well, just to farther. frighten you. Yeah, I'm frightened. <laughs> I'm worried. I won't cut it out to get out of the basement. You It know, scares me. <laughs> I have to get my dog to come with me. That's right. Yeah. Well, so now, speaking of scary We've got a guy that writes some intense, I think really good, uh, true crime books. Um, and it's a pleasure to have him here. And he, I know he's got a new one out, so we've got lots to cover. So not not much chit-chat for us here. we just got to get to it. So, Mr. James Renner, thank you for being here.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on the show.
1: This is um, a pleasure because um, – and I'm not just blowing smoke up your, your, <laughs> your dress here because, in a sense, I, I – I, I, I'm in the true crime world in a sense. That I've written a lot of books and I've talked to a lot of writers and stuff. And there's a lot of great people out there, but there's certain writers that really stick out in my mind is when I uh, listen or read their book, you really go to the case. You are there. You're part of it. You know, the people involved, you know, the, you know, survivors, you're all around that. And, and I look to do that when I do a book myself. And I think it, it separates. The true crime writers, for me, it
0: does. Oh, thank you. Um,
1: thank you. It, well, it means a lot because when you're there, when when I was listening to, um, like true crime addict and stuff, you're there. You're talking about your life. You're, 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 it's, it's almost like I'm riding in the car with you when you're going around meeting people and doing <laughs> things and you're, cause you're very honest and, you, and it's very there, but it means a lot because it's the real deal. It's not just someone looking up on the internet or, Getting someone else's account or from another book or show, you're there, and I, I think that's fantastic. But that must, for me, I look at it this, and I think I just did that with one book, and I think it takes a ton of stamina. Like it's, it's just very emotional. So how do you, how do you put yourself into that, and, and what does it do to you?
0: Um, yeah, well, it, it's something that I was trained to do as a reporter um, when I was. You know, I started out working at the um, Cleveland Scene, which is our version of like Village Voice, those free papers that you find in record stores and coffee shops and um, CD bars. And uh, we do long-form journalism in the new journalism style. You know, so six thousand-word features, and you know, you're you're writing with emotion, and often you become a part of that story, but. You know, I was taught by my editor that if you're writing a story, you have to, and you can't just do it behind a desk. You have to go out to the scene. Um, you have to go and, and meet these people face to face because you will invariably find um, interesting things to describe, or sometimes even new details and new clues that were lost. And uh, so that that's just how I was trained and the method that I used after, um, after the paper when I started writing books. And, uh, and it's, it's totally true, um, you know, I, I, and I recommend it to anybody that writes true crime. If you actually go out to the scene, uh, things become much clearer um, than you would get just discussing it online or over the phone. Um, a very good example of this is with the Moore Murray case where this young woman disappeared from the side of the road in in um, New Hampshire back in 2004, and online, when the Moore Murray case is discussed, a lot of people just kind of blow it off and say, "Oh, she wandered into the woods and died from the elements." Because in their mind, it's a very remote part of New Hampshire in the White Mountains, and it's very remote, and it's easy to get lost in those hills. And but everybody. That I know who's actually taken the time to drive out to the scene immediately changes their, their idea about the case because you see that it really is not that remote. The place where she disappeared and it's in view of about three or four homes and there's a little community right on the other side of a little patch of woods. So, um, you know, any, so it, it, it matters to. See where these things actually happen, and not just learn about them on the on the internet.
1: Yeah, and I and I did that with my last true crime book that I had written a while back. Mm. And um, I agree, there is such a difference being there. It's almost like the JFK thing, you know. And then people actually go to Dealey Plaza, and they actually wow, this is not how I thought it was. Oh, I hear that a
0: lot. Funny you mention <laughs> that because uh, I was invited to a. Um, small true crime festival uh, through the university, or not the university, but the the, lib- the Dallas Library, the main branch of the Dallas Library, which is just down the road from Dealey Plaza. So I was out there in, I think, June, and um, I had never actually seen Dealey Plaza, so I, I drove out there, and my first <laughs> realization was, oh, my, I can't believe how incredibly small this area is because it looks so big, you know, in those old, in the old Zapruder film and everything, but it's really just concentrated in this, this one little block in the middle, you know, on the edge of the city. And, uh, you know, the, the book depository is still there, but um, it's not at all how you, you have it pictured in your mind if you've just watched um, the Zapruder film and and JFK. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always surprising. And, and I
1: think that's perfect example of what I mean. It's just, when I did my last one like this, this book, I sort of, it took a lot out of me. It was a lot more emotional, and it changed me a lot, mm. I think, not only as a writer, but as a person, when you delve that deep into some true case where this really happened. It's not fiction, and, and you see the people, and you see the damage and the survivors and the people that loved their loved ones and stuff. Have you ever looked at it yourself that way and kind of like when you got finished with True Crime Addict and, I mean, the Maura Murray case and stuff, and now you've gone on to the new book, but do you think you're a different person and a different writer because of that?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think each, each of those stories takes a little piece of your, piece of your soul. Um, and, you know, it, for me, there comes a point in the reporting where I become invested in the case and feel responsible for at the very least helping it, if not, you know, had these delusions of grandeur of, of solving these cases. And, uh, uh, and, and that definitely takes a toll. And I like to put in a lot of personal stories about what happened to me along the the way, along, along the way to, to report these, these stories. So my true crime books end up being uh, kind of memoirs at the same time. So um, they're deeply personal. Uh, I've just finished up the first draft of a book that'll be out in 2024. That's about the Boy Scouts of America. And uh, my experience as a camp counselor at Ohio's biggest camp back in 1995, uh, where a young man ended up dead um, that, that summer in that one is the most personal thing I've ever written. It involves me and my friends from back then. And it, it explores the systemic abuse within the Boy Scouts. And I'm honestly, I'm still recovering from <laughs> the, the writing of that one. And, uh, you know, it, it, definitely feels more than anything I've written before that I've, I've put up, like I sacrificed a bit of my soul to, to make that book happen. So, you know, I, I think really good true crime writers and journalists in general um, do that. And, you know, for for instance, the it's it's a fairly new thing where, where you're starting to recognize the secondhand trauma that, some of these journalists experienced, some of that came out of the reporting of the, the wars in the, the Middle East and Iraq and Afghanistan, where the journalists came back and exhibited system uh, symptoms of PTSD, just like the, the soldiers who were returning. And so I think we're a lot more aware of that now, where, you know, I talked to some of the, these, these older writers who – were reporting crime in the 50s and 60s and I you know I, I I put the question to them you know you know how do you how did you deal with all that and and, and mostly they just say well nothing nothing that a bottle of whiskey can't fix yeah
1: <laughs> I was gonna say yeah. yeah that well that generation too right I mean yeah. each generation further back the Fathers coming from the wars, and then you they they didn't touch the kids, you know,
0: they didn't hug their son type thing. There's a lot of differences, you know. Right, I think you know that that works for them, great. But you know, I yeah, if if you don't want to destroy your body, you got to look to therapy and, and medication. I don't know of any investigative journalist that isn't on some sort of anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication. Literally, I don't. I all the ones that I'm friends with are on. You know, we exchange, uh, you know, not, we don't exchange recipes. <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we discuss what we're on when we're together. It's like, oh, I'm trying clonazepam, you know, right now. What are you on? Oh, Lexapro, you know, that sort of stuff.
1: Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's, I agree. I mean, I'm on several, but I have several issues. So that's a story. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so how do you, how do you, come across these cases and that's kind of a cliche question and i get that myself but in 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 your particular cases you're definitely invested in them and they're very important to you yeah and um how how so what what attracts you because you've got the new book out called little crazy children and it's another case you you've covered here so how do these fall into your lap and and what makes you decide because I'm sure you get a lot of people saying hey
0: have you heard about this or that yes
1: but what would make you kind of go oh this is the
0: one well first of all it has to be unsolved um, because uh, as soon as a case is solved I lose all interest in it um, the thing that I'm really attracted to are these intricate bizarre puzzles of cases. Uh, which is why I was attracted to the Maura Murray case because it's such a, you know, such a weird case, a young nursing student who emails her professors, says there's been a death in the family, which was a lie, and then empties her bank account, packs up her stuff and drives into the White Mountains of New Hampshire and then disappears. So it's really two mysteries. What happened to Maura Murray and, and, uh, what was she doing in the White Mountains to begin with? So that makes it a very unique puzzle. Um, And with Little Crazy Children, my new book, it's about the Lisa Pruitt case, um, 16-year-old girl who was stabbed to death behind a mansion in Shaker Heights. And it's a very unique case in that the story is really about how a group of entitled teenagers, the sons and daughters of lawyers and doctors and entrepreneurs, uh, hijack a murder investigation and point the finger at a kid who had nothing to do with it just because he was the weird kid in school. Uh, so it's, I, I, am looking for unsolved mysteries. I'm looking for unique cases. So if they fit into the center of all, you know, those, that Venn diagram, I, I really become interested. And then I have to think, is this a case that's interesting enough and big enough to spend the next, um, several years thinking about. And, uh, uh, so that that's 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 how I kind of figure it out. And and whether or not it would there'd be any personal interest in the, you know, you know, how it might affect me personally, too, is definitely part of it.
1: So and, and I know when so when you go to a location of a case and you start finding um, people and, and all that, what what's the hardest thing to do? What's the hardest thing about this type of uh, research for you? Well, that's to me.
0: That's the real fun part is is going out there and seeing these locations and kind of getting a feel for the 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 you know the setting, the town, the community. Um, as far as like the the hardest part is probably developing a relationship with the family. You know, the victims' family. These people have gone. You know, I, I'm I'm writing a book about what. Is essentially the, the worst day of their lives, and uh, th- it all comes down to the initial meeting and and how I present myself and their reception. Uh, that kind of sets the tone for how the the book is going to go. And the Moore Murray book was so contentious with the the victim's family that. I don't know that I would do another book without full cooperation with uh with the victim's family.
1: Yeah, that book uh that book taught me how to do my last book. Oh, okay.
0: um be- that's yeah, a great because that
1: yeah because that's actually how I took it when I was listening like especially there's a the part where you get in a car with someone else and you are talking about you might not ever re- come back. How do you know? <laughs> Remember that? And I was just like this is like, well, of course you come back because the book, you know, it wouldn't have been finished. <laughs> but but I, it's just that that made a big impact. It, just that whole book and how I treated it. And I made the family, um, of my case, a very big part of the book. Yeah. I had them read parts. I had them write parts. and And we talked. I spent a lot of time with them. And it was really important that they got their story and their feelings out. But your book did that for me, that true crime addict is what turned the way I write. Oh great.
0: Thank you. So you know, yeah. Even, no, if, even if it boils down to like this is what not to do, um, if people can take a you know, um some 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 um I don't know, learning from that, um, that's super cool.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's amazing, you know, how, how, and that's kind of the thing I look at. There's, it's amazing how a case like this can affect so many people for so many years and just you, the ripple effects. Yes. Even, even how it's affected you and how much time you spent and then how that's affected people that read or listen to your books, like even like me, and then how I approach another case that's nothing to do with it. There's, there's so many, you know, variables that, that, come with it. And, and I, I find that fascinating myself. That's kind of my what I get into. I like the, the, the cause and how, what, what it actually does more than the crime itself.
0: I do too. And I, I have this podcast that I do about once a year. I do six episodes of this podcast called The Philosophy of Crime. And sometimes I explore these weird questions behind true crime. And one of the episodes deals with this theory that I have when you're talking about the ripple effects of these terrible crimes, uh, all the ones that I've looked at, there's something good that comes out of it. Um, That, you know, for instance, like the uh, Amber Hagerman, um, you know, this abduction that inspired the Amber Alert, uh, and, and this one girl's abduction ends up solving hundreds of others, and, and so I, I developed this theory that you know that jokingly kind of I call the Renner's second law of true crime dynamics, um, <laughs> that uh, you know that that there is good that comes out of these these tragedies after after time. You know sometimes it takes a while, but there's an equal and opposite reaction of of good i think that comes out of these tragedies yeah,
1: yeah yeah i agree totally with all tragedies but it's just it's a hard thing to say especially to people that are grieving of course it's yeah it's true it's so true you know uh, actually your philosophy of crime i've heard those those are very good thank just, you you know thank you very much it, I, it they, I, they, I can't they really do it. stick
0: out i can't do it weekly because it takes so long to write. You know, each each episode takes me a week and a half to two weeks to write, and then so I write them in batches and then um, release yeah. them once a year.
1: Yeah, I like them because I, I'm not a podcast person, but um, I know a lot of podcasters and I've, I've heard them, some of them. But uh, that was different. It's fresh. It's kind of a different approach. It's not just like going over a case. You actually talk about things. And thanks. I, I like. I think that's a thumbs up. Thank you. So, so now your new book. Let's talk about that. What's what? What else is? What's the basic premise of this? We, we you mentioned it a little bit about yeah. Lisa Pruitt and stuff, and and the kid that got accused of it
0: and stuff. So, what what did you find out? So you know, this this case was on my radar for a long, long time. I, I remember being in college at Kent State University and picking up an issue of Scene, and there was a cover story on the case where I really learned about it for the first time, and uh, and it, it that whole event where I read the, the the story, it made me realize that I'd really like to write the way that that writer wrote that story and this long form journalism that really delves into the details. And um, and also, I disagreed with his conclusion because uh, he kind of concluded that Kevin Young, this weird kid in school who was blamed for the crime. Was actually guilty, even though he was acquitted of the crime in '93. And uh, I saw a bunch of other avenues that could be explored that nobody had had looked into. So um, it was that moment where I realized one, I, I wanted to write like this, and two, um, I, I could do it differently—not necessarily better, but I could go a different route. And so um, I always kind of thought of the story the the basis, the basics of the story are that. Uh, Lisa Pruitt was 16 years old. Um, the, this was September of 1990, and she had just gotten her driver's license, and her boyfriend, Dan Dreyford, had just gotten out of the psychiatric unit at Cleveland Clinic, where he had been for a little over a month. And, uh, you know, while he was in there, by the way, uh, he had written her letters saying, please stay away from me when I get out. I don't want to kill you. And uh, shes they devised a plan where she's going to sneak out of the house out at of a, at a her house and then bike take her bike over to his house at about 12.30 in the morning that night. And uh, only a handful of people knew about that. Dan told a couple friends. And uh, um, and then she's found stabbed to death about uh, 30 feet from the boyfriend's back door. And then uh, the next day, a few of the friends of the boyfriend and Lisa's, they were in this small little click at school called the AP Posse for advanced placement. These were kids in advanced placement classes. And they got together and discussed the case. And then the next day, some of them went to the police and said, hey, it can't be our friend Dan. It has to be the weird kid in school, this Kevin Young, who, you know, was, a. I think, honestly, I think today uh, he would be considered neurodivergent. I, I suspect maybe he's on the spectrum, but I don't know that for sure. I'm, I can't diagnose people, but yeah. that would be my hunch. And there's never any evidence that links Kevin to the crime, but eventually he was charged, and there was a big trial in 93, and he was acquitted. But to this day, you ask anybody in Shaker Heights and they'll say, oh, Kevin Young did it. He just h- hired a fancy lawyer to get them off. I, over the years, gathered thousands of pages of police reports and trial transcripts. And it, I thought one day I might have enough to write a book. And then COVID happened and I found myself trapped at home and, and with nothing to do. The project I was working on in Las Vegas was, was shut down. I was working on a TV show. And so I had all this time and like Burgess Meredith and the Twilight Zone time enough at last. And uh, uh, so I, I opened, cracked open the the files and I, I had two goals. One, I wanted to exonerate Kevin Young in the, in the court of public opinion. And two, I wanted to show that the boyfriend was the most likely suspect. What I didn't expect to find is about two weeks into my research, I came across evidence in those reports that, that showed that a, another young man uh, named David Brannigan um, was at the scene of the crime the night of Lisa's murder. And when I started looking into his background, oh, man, the stuff that came out of there, uh, just very, very dark. Um, his, you know, I spoke to a number of his ex-girlfriends and his, his ex, uh, the mother of his child who he lived with for, I think, like 10 years. And they all agree that, you know, the, he's he's probably the guy that, that uh, not only killed Lisa Pruitt, but he's linked to two other murders that occurred on the, the same city block.
1: Was there any evidence uh, linking uh, David uh, Brannigan to this murder?
0: Well, no, only because they didn't test it to see if it could be anybody other than Kevin Young. Um, so uh-huh. they were so focused on Kevin, they weren't considering other suspects. So, for instance, they have a fingerprint that was found on an item at the crime scene, and they tested it to see if it matched Kevin, and it didn't. And since it didn't, they didn't follow it up. So they've never they've never tried to see if the fingerprint uh, matches David Brannigan's. Uh, Brannigan, wow. both Brannigan and Kevin Young are now deceased. They both died coincidentally in 2017. Both drank themselves to death. Um, so uh, it's that, that's frustrating. Yeah. I, I really would have liked to have interviewed Brannigan and to see what kind of response he w- he would have given. Um, the rest of it's circumstantial. Branigan admitted to breaking into homes around the time of, and on that block, around the time of the murders, and he was stealing stuff from people's homes, not money, but little trinkets. And he had a collection of knives, and Lisa was stabbed to death, and they never did find the murder weapon. Um, he describes being at the scene of the crime the night of the murder, where he describes the two cops that was were searching the area, and um, they did not see him, which means that he was in hiding and watching them. Um, and he's the only witness in this double homicide that occurred on the same block five years before that. And beyond that, there's a number of women that have come forward, you know, alleging rape, uh, alleging all these dark things. He would sneak into their houses and coerce them into into sex, saying that if they made any noise and woke up the parents, he would say that that she brought him into the house. Stuff like that. Uh, he was a very dangerous man when he was when he was younger, for sure.
1: When you're when you do this, but um, because you're doing unsolved, and I know I I've done solved. So when you approach the police and when you talk and when you do these kinds of books, do they feel a little bit I don't know,
0: um, put off? Do do they feel like they're being watched or questioned? I would imagine it's always different, and it runs the whole spectrum. I've had a uh, You know, for I I wrote about this case, uh, the murder of Beverly Jaros that happened in Garfield Heights in 1964. And the police detectives for that case invited me in and opened up all their files to me, even though it was an active open case, all the way to like the Amy Mihalovic case, which I've written about a lot, where the police have never shared anything with me um, and will only confirm what I've already found. Um, So it's always a crapshoot. I find that that uh, smaller jurisdictions are often more helpful, uh, especially if I can approach them in person first and make a relationship with a detective and he can hear my Ohio accent. Um, and, uh, uh, so it's it's different every time.
1: Yeah, I always, I always wonder because there's, there's such a... A lot of times when you see true crime television programs, you know, or different things, there seems to be a, a little bit of... Um, I don't know. It's, it's almost like an attack on policing. Yeah. Uh, oh, they, they did a terrible job or they if they didn't screw it up. So, you know, you hear that kind of, kind of talk about the police in a lot of these shows that you see and you kind of think, well, it's not always fair, but it's just, I just wondered if they were under, feel a little bit timid about talking.
0: I think sometimes, um, they were really, um, reticent, I guess, to be involved with the Lisa Pruitt book, but, the Lisa, this little crazy children, it, it was different than the other unsolved cases I've written about because even though it was unsolved, all the police reports were actually public record because here in Ohio, as soon as you charge somebody with a crime like they did with Kevin Young, all those reports become public records. So most of the times when I'm writing about unsolved cases, I can't get the police reports. But with this one, even though it's never been solved, all the reports were... Um, Public because of that loophole. It's just, it's just amazing.
1: And and when they when they actually um, tried uh, what Kevin Young and and he got acquitted. They didn't really have any evidence, or like what what did they use to to charge him and try him with?
0: So, what they finally got that they viewed as enough to charge him with was testimony from a woman who was a patient at the same psychiatric unit as Kevin Young was after the murder. And this woman came forward a couple years after the murder to say that he confessed to her while they were both in the unit. Now, um, when they got her on the stand, they, and she told her story, it came out that that night of the so-called confession, she was delusional and seeing visions of her father being tortured in World War II and all this wild stuff and, uh, You know, she had not gone to the police, but she had gone to a, um, a TV news reporter to get on, you know, and, and she got on the news and they blacked out her face and everything, of course. But, um, her, her motivation did not necessarily seem to be, um, justice, but to, um, you know, maybe get on TV. So where do you, how, do you, how do you see the case now? Where do you see it? Things like this never really get resolved, do they? Um, I think they could resolve this one, but the Shaker Heights police and, and Shaker Heights, the town, they need to kind of admit that, that they did the wrong thing back in, in 1990 by going after Kevin Young. Um, they've dug their heels in, even though he was acquitted, with him still being the only person that they'll look at. And if they just set that aside, and, and I'm hoping enough time has passed that that now would be a good time to do it, they could go back and test the evidence, which they, they really haven't reexamined the evidence significantly since back then. Um, they could see if Brannigan's fingerprint matches the fingerprint they found or the shoe print matches the type of shoe he was wearing and they could retest the evidence to see, you know, there's so much advancement. Now it might be able to kick out some DNA or even other hairs or fibers. And then you've got this double homicide that I believe Brannigan's also responsible for, where a woman was strangled with an uh, the cord of an iron. And certainly you're going to have DNA of the killer on that thing. So um, just test the evidence. If If they truly believe it's Kevin, then still test the evidence so you know for sure. Um, but they, so far, they won't take that gamble.
1: Yeah, I, I, what do you think that is? Do you think that uh, a lot of people suggest that it's just detectives or district attorneys that have a lot of ego?
0: I think it's simply apathy. I think they view it as they've already solved it, so why pay $500 for this test that would just prove that they were right anyways? You know, the Lisa's family were convinced by the police and prosecutors that it was Kevin as well. So you know, I, I, maybe they look at it as like, well, you know, why why waste resources on this if we already know the answer? Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess some of it makes sense, but some of it doesn't because you know, when it's we're dealing with people's lives, I don't know that
0: money and things like that should really be at issue. I guess I guess it is in a way. It, it shouldn't. Yeah, for sure. Um, but unfortunately, I think. You know, it is all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still a business. Yeah, um, we, we unfortunately live in a, in, a, in a capitalist system, and they have to take those things into account. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because everything <laughs> has to be a business. You know, it's crazy. But
1: So when you, when you whenever you've approached suspects, like I know, especially in the previous case, is there a certain way you go about doing that? How would you approach if, if these suspects were still alive and you wanted to go interview them? How would you do that?
0: Um, I always try to meet them face-to-face at first so they don't have the opportunity to hang up or just send me to voicemail. So I'll go out to their house and knock on their door, try to catch them outside, and speak to them. And honestly, 90% of the time, they'll talk to me. And for a while, I couldn't really understand that because... And and I saw this in the Amy Mihalovic case a lot. There's so many suspects in Amy's case. I mean, we're talking, the best the FBI has ever been able to do is, is a top 25 list of suspects. So there's plenty of people to talk to. Now these people have been, um, suspected of murdering a 10 year old girl and have taken lie detector tests and have been interrogated. And you'd think the last thing they would do is speak to a reporter, but 90% of the time they will. And I think I figured it out eventually. I think. They in they are part of this story, and this thing has happened to them, and they haven't been able to talk to uh, talk about it with anybody, or maybe their spouse, or you know, very few people. But that story is something that is interesting, and and here comes a person who wants to hear about it, and I think it's just part of the human condition where they want to share their story, you know, even if it makes them kind of look um, guilty or. Or whatever. Uh, I, I think they're just happy to share the stories. That's, that's what I've found anyways. Most of the time they'll talk. Nobody attacking you yet. Hey, eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, the only, um, the only people that I've had problems with are these internet trolls that attach themselves to the cases either because they fell in love with the victim or they just want to create chaos, uh, in people's lives. And those have been much more dangerous than suspects in these cases. Um, I've had these trolls in the Maura Murray case, um, track my family down on vacation at the Outer Banks and leave a threatening message on the steps to the Honda we were pinning. Um, that changed a lot of things for me. Uh, and, yeah. um, so th- I don't, the suspects aren't scary. It's these people, these anonymous people that are attracted to these, these cases for whatever reason.
1: How, how do you deal with that? I mean, the Internet in itself, it's changed so many things. There's a lot of great, great things about it. I, I, there's certain things that it's amazing. You, ha- you can see so much more, learn so much more, meet people and, and interact with people so much yeah, better than it used to be, and I think that's a fantastic thing. But at the same time, I mean, um I, I personally, I get a lot of awful emails, mm. which actually we just forward to Dave all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's the Clarence I was here, <laughs> but because uh, you know I'm crying in in my room. So, but it, so what do you what do you do? Like, how do you that in itself too? Because every time you must. You must need to have access because you want tips. You yeah, want people yeah. to pass on information, but you don't want the nut jobs coming out yeah. threatening your family. So do you have, what's the, what would you recommend? What am I supposed to do
0: now? Uh, <laughs> I, well, I would, I would recommend a couple things. The things that I do now um, are, you know, be careful. The things that you, the pictures you post online don't show your exact location for one Um um two, um assume that anybody who's reaching out to you through email or direct messages is not who they say they are. That happens a lot. And if they're sending you a tip and it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, you know, verify, you know, take the tip if it's interesting, but be- before you record on it, verify it somewhere else. Um, you know, I, I had, uh, again, with the Moore Murray case, I had a person reach out to me, pretending to be a classmate of Mora's from UMass who said he saw her alive with um, a specific friend of hers shortly before her disappearance in New Hampshire. And it would have changed the pace completely. And I, by then, uh, had enough experience to think, well, you know, this sounds legit, but it's, it does sound too good to be true. So I looked into the guy's name. And it turned out to be a student. He really was a, the, It really was the name of a student at UMass at the time, and he gave me his birth date too because um, you know he said he was in New Hampshire for his birthday, and so I I did a background check and guessed this guy's birth date was the day he said it was, but there's still something nagging at me with it, and um, so I didn't report on it right away. I passed the the info to police and the police were quickly able to determine that it was not in fact really this guy but another troll who had taken on that identity in order to try to get me to report false information on the case i mean it was really clever and convoluted and i almost fell for it um and i think i think sometimes reporters do you know fall for that sort of thing even at major newspapers
1: but you have to wonder what makes it what drives a person to do that if it's not a political reason, you have to think, well, what what was in it
0: for him to make you want to do that? I think they get off on it. I think that's the only ex- explanation that, that makes any sense. <laughs> that's crazy. I think That's
1: kind of the one negative thing I guess we could say about the internet is we, uh, we cer- certainly have learned a lot about the other people that live around us.
0: Oh yeah. 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 Yep. Um, you know, with uh, back to the Amy case, you know, uh, you yeah. you start looking at her neighbors and, uh, you know, everybody, you know, you look into somebody's back, everybody kind of looks like the suspect. Um, yeah. You know, they all have creepy stuff in their past <laughs> uh, uh, that, you know, the, I, I re- interviewed an FBI agent about the Amy case and he, he said, well, you know, yeah, everybody in that neighborhood was weird. When we looked into their background, you know, next door was this family that just looked like the all American couple and they, you know, perfect to a fault. And, we did a little digging and finds out the husband can only get off if the wife is standing over a glass table and, and pooping on it. And, <laughs> uh, um, Bill O'Reilly. No, just <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind closed doors that, that, um, you know, just, yeah. you know, the, for good reason, you know, that, but, you know, once you really start digging into, into the background of, of people, so many crazy stuff comes out
1: but that you know learning that over the years even for myself it's changed the way like a lot of times when i see crime programs or documentaries or shows now i guess i'm jaded because now because you know that piece of information about how anybody could really can look like the suspect you know what i mean yeah. like they can take a lot of different characters around the 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 victim or the victim's family, and they can make them sound so bad oh, yeah. that I've, I've kind of lost a, my, I don't know, interest a little bit in a lot of the shows. Yeah, so so for me anyway, it, it's jaded me on a lot of it because now I don't always believe what I see when they're showing and they, they kind of pick on a suspect or a couple of people and they make them look bad. And a lot of times being through the the other side of it when you're doing the research... You can come up with a handful of people that look bad.
0: To your point, uh, you know, I think actually to me it makes me a little optimistic because knowing that your neighbors are weirdos too and have, you know, <laughs> these, these secrets and things that they're up to, I looked at, at kind of the optimistic side of that, which is this sort of crime is still very, very rare. And even though people are up to some weird things, generally they're decent people. You know, most, most, I think it's, I think it's a good sign that this sort of thing doesn't happen more often. And even though people yeah. are, you know, doing, doing strange things, they're not.
1: Yeah. They might have, you know, they're getting their glass <laughs> tables dirty, but that's, <laughs> <coughs> but, you know, they're not out killing people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's good. And plus then when they find out your secrets, it's okay. Exactly right, right? Like... They're not looking like you as the suspect. No, it's not him. We know it's not James. We, you know, he does weird stuff, but he's
0: not like, he's not like that. You know, I do think about that sometimes, like just the fact that, you know, I, I, I'm in this world a lot and writing about it, um, you know, I've told my wife, I'm like, do not die under any sort of mysterious circumstances. I'll be the first one they look at. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, please, uh You know, please, you know. So, you know, the, the searches I do for these books online, uh, you know, methods of, of murder and things like that would not look good in my search history. Uh, <laughs> um, but hopefully, you know, constantly checking my email and my phone. Uh, provides alibi as far as location, you know, for, for anything that would happen in the, in the immediate area.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, I was just wondering, since you're only interested in unsolved cases, have you ever had a case solved while you were trying to complete the book?
0: No, I think about that a lot. Um, and <laughs> you, like, it's, it's a concern, but it shouldn't be a worry because, you know, you want these cases solved. So that would be a good thing. Right. It might, it might lead to a more interesting story that way. It's never happened. I've written about a couple stories that have been solved after I've written them. You know, the, I think of the girls in Cleveland who were abducted and kept in the home of Ariel Castro for 10 years. Um, Amanda Berry, Gina De Jesus and Michelle Knight. And I had written about Amanda and Gina when I was a reporter and met with their families and really looked into the case. And uh, uh, what freaked me out was when it was solved. First of all, I was at my, my son was five at the time, and he was in gymnastics. And I was, he was at practice, and I'm sitting there with a group of, of uh, other parents, and I get this text message from a source inside the Cleveland Police Department that said, Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus just walked out of a house on the west side. And I was like, holy... How dare you! And everybody looked at me in there. You know, I'm like, oh, you're going to hear about it. And you're going to hear about it real soon. Uh, but I went back into my notes, uh, and I, because I had just written about it a couple years before that, and Ariel Castro's name was in my notes. And uh, it was because he was the father of one of uh, Gina DeJesus's friends, and it was the friend... Uh, Ariel's daughter, who was the last person to see her. And so at the time, you know, I went to my editor and I said, hey, I'd really like to interview this Arlene Castro. And we decided not to because she was still a juvenile. But I'm always going to wonder if I had talked to the girl or had gone to Ariel's house uh, if something would have happened differently and right. so that haunts me a little bit but i you know the fbi had that information too the police had that information too so yeah. everybody was really close but nobody followed up on that one little lead
1: that's pretty amazing like when cases like that happened you know when we have such a in a way we have kind of a negative thought in general i think as people like when someone goes missing and something happens so yeah they're just going to be dead anyway and there's all that sort of talk, and it's just amazing when something like that happens. Yeah, it's something you'd never expect either. You know, it's just wow. It's it's just it, you can't never get over
0: it. You know, it was uh, it was surreal to be in the epicenter of, of when that was happening. It was just you know, it's like uh, if a UFO landed on the White House lawn type of feeling. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, at least it didn't. Ha- they didn't find them in your house.
0: Yeah. that would have been a whole different story
1: yeah then that would have been a new story boy (laughs) well so now at the end of the day when you write these books and like your new book here uh, little crazy children
0: what do you what do you hope that the reader takes away from the book when they're finished i i think i'd like them to take away a little bit of knowledge of the process of how criminal cases work and how fallible they can be and how it's just humans that are working them and, and humans make a lot of mistakes. And uh um, you know, to, to see how the system is, is kinda of broken in some ways, but but you know, so probably the best system that, that we could have at the moment. Um and and the the ripple effects of the crime and also how it affects the people that are writing and, and reporting on it. Um, you know, the all, all that behind the scenes stuff, you know, and and, and how it How it really works?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I I think the for me a lot of it too. I always say it's the bottom line is that you know the police are human. The everybody is. They can. Yeah, there's not always a conspiracy or bad people or good. You know, it's just it's just there's a lot of humans and mistakes happen and yep. sometimes things just happen. So what's next? What's next? You're doing this now and and you have have you got a couple other projects going on at the same time or do you? Yeah, to sort of recover for a while.
0: Well, this one uh, I had the you know um, little crazy children. Even though it just came out like two or three weeks ago, it was done back in November of last year signed a contract with the same publisher, Kensington Citadel, uh, and uh for two more true crime books. And I've already written the next one that'll come out next year that is that's that Boy Scout book. And right. um so I, I've that's been the first half of this year are the adventures that I took uh with that one, which include flying out to Pipestone, Minnesota to Hang out with the Native Americans who mine the material that's used for a secret society inside this Boy Scout camp. Um, and, um, my trip to DC where I met up with uh, a person who does psilocybin therapy for uh, people suffering from PTSD and, uh, and tripping out with him. And so lots of interesting. Uh, quirky adventures in this, in this next book.
1: Well, and the secret society let you go.
0: <laughs> they, <laughs> they are freaking out right now because they know the book's coming. Um, and I don't know that it could survive after the book comes out. The stuff that goes on at that camp is insane. And I think once the parents realize what they've not been told, um, it's gonna, uh, it's gonna upset some people. I'm hoping that the book does for uh, summer camps what Jaws did for beaches. <laughs> 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 well, there
1: you go, or what Jaws two did. No, yes. <laughs> yeah, awful. Anyway, now so social media. How do you like, uh, to be found or do you like to be found? I know that that's <laughs> a, you know, a, yeah. kind of a question,
0: but. Well, the best place to go is just jamesrenner.com. Uh, that'll have links to everything else. I'm on, you know, X or Twitter, formerly known as Twitter and, and Facebook. And, uh, I've started putting things up on TikTok, uh, still trying to figure out how to, how to work that one, but. Yeah, I'm all over the place.
1: TikTok. So you're up there dancing on TikTok. Right.
0: Actually, there's it's funny. I do have a video up there of me and my daughter. Uh she's teaching me a uh, a dance. Um and uh but some of it are clips from the podcast I do every week, which is uh true crime this week comes out on Fridays and Yeah, so there's crime related stuff, but there's, you know, there's other things that are more personal in there too fantastic we will put all of that up on ours as well
1: so people can find you with one click if they can't thank you Um, really appreciate you being on the show yeah of course your newest book Little Crazy Children is a true crime tragedy of lost innocence another great book of course so the author James Renner thank you for being here hey thank you
0: thanks James you bet you've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. The show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.